Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may open your word to us in the book of Romans once again. That marvelous and powerful book, which teaches us once more of the greatness of Jesus Christ and the blessings that we have in him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How do you view the world? How do you see the world? Okay, unfortunately, I'm going to have to bring up my girlfriend again. He's uh, the source of so many of my good introductions. Anyway, according to my girlfriend, this is the same one. Actually, he's got a lot of interesting conversations and uh, thoughts. His view is that the world is made up of good people and bad people. And I'm sure that for many people, they share the same perspective. So in the world that we live in, there are a large number of these good, moral, upstanding citizens... And then there are a small minority of bad apples, people who are immoral, dishonest, and crooked. And obviously for my friend, he would consider himself to be part of the majority of good people, the good moral people. But is that really the truth? Is that the way that God looks at us? Is that the reality? Now today is our third talk on the book of Romans. And in the first talk, in the first study that you have done for your Bible study, the central theme was in chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, which is up here. Okay? And basically, what God had said through Paul was that Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. From the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that was the first section, that God saves people, we receive that salvation through faith, and that is all that is required. And last week we saw that this faith was required and God's saving plan was required because the wrath of God was coming against all the wickedness and godlessness in the world. And that was made up because people suppressed the truth about God and do not worship Him. They exchanged the worship of God and instead of giving thanks and worshipping God, they worship other things. And God gave them over to all sorts of sins. And in fact, these people, they encourage other people to sin even though it leads to their death. Now, I think that as we come then to today's passage, the problem is, which group do we see ourselves in? Do we see ourselves as the good people? Or do we see ourselves as the bad people? Because as we had read last week, the great temptation for us is that when we read of people who are given over into gross sexual sin, given even to homosexuality and to other sins, the temptation for us would be to think we are not like them. We are the good people. These are the people who are outside the church. These are the people who are outside of the body of Christ. So it begins in chapter 2, verse 1, by saying, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, who is the you that is in view here? Now for many people, and I consider them to, to be right, and I share the same view, the you here would probably be the Jews, because they were the people likely to pass judgment on the people in chapter 1. Because for the Jews, they would be very unlikely to A, be practicing the sort of sexual morality, or promoting the sort of sexual immorality 
that chapter 1 was talking about sexual sins and homosexuality. And also because it was common practice among the Gentiles who were not Christians to be engaged in this sort of sexual practice. So the Greeks had a very common practice where male students often became lovers of their teachers. That was an accepted practice. The Romans had gods and goddesses who promoted uh, sexuality and lovemaking. So for the Jew, he would be looking back and thinking, yes, all these people are wrong, you know, you should tell them, God, that they are wrong. These are the people who are suppressing the truth about God. These are the people who are without excuse. We are the good moral people, and we are not the people that God has in view here. But chapter 2 is very shocking. Because in chapter 2, it turns the picture around, and God says, it is not just the, the immoral people, the Gentile people out there, who are under judgment, but you, you yourselves are under judgment. And it says that in verse 1 to verse 5, because you may judge the other person, but you're condemning yourself. Why? Because you do the very same things. In fact, verse 2 to verse 5 keeps going on about how you pass judgment, but you do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment is against those who do such things is based on the truth. In verse 3, So when you, a mere human being, passes judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Now, this phrase here, uh, that you will do the same thing, means that they are just as without excuse as the people who suppress the truth. So if you look up here in chapter 1, verse 20, right? Uh, okay, it says, that they are without excuse. The people who suppress the truth about God is without excuse. But yet, God says in the same, same way in verse 3, that those people who pass judgment, they do the same things, they are also without excuse. So here, if you look back at the circles, right, Ping, maybe you go back to the circles, you can see that in the mind, in the audience of the book of Romans, there were two sorts of people and I think that we can identify with them. They would be the Jewish people who regarded themselves as good, moral, upright people. And on the other hand, you would have the people who were the Gentiles. And these people would more commonly fall under the, the, the category of chapter 1, who were the immoral people. They came from the background where people regularly practiced sexual morality and was accepted by society. But the next slide... Uh, the one about the do's, yep. But the problem is, God's view is that the good moral person, the Jewish person, even though they are judging the immoral Gentile people, they are doing the same things. And by doing the same things, they too are without excuse and they too will actually fall under God's judgment. Now, Obviously, for the Jewish person, for the good moral person, even the modern good moral person, we may think, yes, we don't commit those sorts of sexual, mor uh, sexual morality, we don't cheat on our marriages, we don't commit adultery, we don't commit homosexual sins. But remember that at the end of last week's sermon, the end of last week's passage, Paul had a whole, another whole list of sins, which was the next slide. Sins like gossip, sins like malice, sins like hate, 
sins even like disobeying your parents. And what God had been saying was that even the sins of these levels, God would judge people for. Not just the gross sexual sins that were in view, that people found repugnant, but even sins like gossiping and malice and hate and all these other things, relational sins, God would judge people for. And if this was the case, then that meant that there are no good moral people because every single person commits one of these sins and God will judge you for it. Think of the holiest person that you can think of. Okay, I used to think that uh, the holiest person that was alive was Mother Teresa. Many people think Mother Teresa was a very powerful person and I remember reading on the internet that some article saying how uh, when she came to speak in the American Congress, I think people had tears in their eyes because they were so struck by her diminutive stature, but her aura of holiness. But yet even Mother Teresa, I remember an interview, said that she regarded herself as a sinner. She said that she saw herself as sinful. Now if Mother Teresa was sinful, then what about the rest of us? We are, compared to Mother Teresa, uh, worse than her relatively, and we are sinners too, and God will judge us. See, the problem is, as we look more closely at what God says here, is that the way that God judges us is very different from the way that we judge ourselves. Now, first of all, I want to say that the Bible is not saying that judging is wrong. Okay, sometimes people mistakenly take this passage and say, oh, you shouldn't be judging me. You have no right to judge me because only God can judge me and you have no right to, to judge in any way. The problem is the Bible actually says that we are to be discerning. So we are to discern whether someone is teaching false teaching. We are to discern whether someone is a false teacher. We are to discern if someone is living the wrong way. Now, if that's the case, that means that there is judging in the Christian life. But that's not what the argument is here today. It's not about judging per se. It's about judging and doing. The problem is, they recognized what was wrong, but they were doing the very same things. In fact, if you look very closely, it says there in verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Now again, this would be a very great shock to the Jewish person. Because he or she would be thinking that they would be storing up treasure for themselves at the last day. And indeed, for ourselves today, the modern moral person would think that every time I do a good thing, I'm storing up treasure for myself in heaven. But in fact, in God's eyes, we are actually storing up wrath. Because every time we do something wrong, we need to pay for it. We are storing up wrath. See, God's judgment system <clears throat> is very different from the world's judgment system. God's judgment system is a bit like uh, the Singapore traffic demerit system, I think. You see, every time you speed and you get caught by the traffic light camera, you get a fine. But you might not know it yet because you haven't received your um, 
your, your, your letter. You know, I, I, one of the worst things I always experience, and my wife thinks I'm a bit neurotic, and I think I'm a bit neurotic. You know, I go past the light and I say to her, hey, was that red? Was that red or was that yellow? Was that traffic camera there? And then sometimes to your great horror, you look back and think, oh my goodness, there is a traffic camera. Then you ask yourself, did you see a flash? Did you see a flash? No, no, I didn't see a flash. Okay, I might be alright. I was probably yellow. But you don't know whether you really got a fine until you, you get a letter. You know, you beat a red light, you get caught by the traffic light camera. You don't know whether you are actually in the wrong until one day when you actually get the fine and you've stored up all these points against yourself. And it's an absolute thing. Because once you've gone through that red light, once you've broken the speed limit, you can't say to God, Oh, you know, God, I've gone past that, that traffic junction every day in my working life, and every day I, I obey the law, and I never, you know, I never go across the red light. But, so therefore, because I've, I've done that 364 days of the week, you've got to excuse me this one time. It doesn't work that way. That's not, way. that's not the way the law works, and that's not the way God's law works as well. Just because you've done good things doesn't mean that it outweighs the one bad thing you did. See, that's God's standard of judgment, and that's the standard of judgment that He's trying to impress on us as He is on the Jews. Once you do these things, once you break the laws that you know and you accuse other people of doing, once you have that lust in your heart, the hate in your heart, or the gossip that you've said, or the malicious thing that you did, you have sinned. You have sinned before God, and God says you must pay for it. I remember Joshua Ng in the uh, church camp. He gave a very good illustration. Actually, Joshua Ng, when he first began preaching, he wasn't a very good preacher. He's getting better and better every time I hear him. But then again, he's been doing it for about 20 years, so he should be. But he gave this illustration, which I thought was a real powerful example of our judging system. So I remember the church camp. He said how we judge ourselves relative to other people. And that's why the Jews thought that they were better than the Gentiles. So he gave the example of how, imagine you're a, a shoplifter and you stole from the shop and you get caught. But you say, well, I'm not so bad because at least I'm not a serial thief. You know, I, I only stole once from that shop. But then the person who's a serial thief will say, well, at least I'm just a shoplifter. I didn't use a gun to hold up the shop or a knife. Well, the person who uses a gun or, or a knife will say, well, at least even though I used a knife or a gun, I didn't shoot the shopkeeper. And the person who shot the shopkeeper will say, well, at least I didn't kill the shopkeeper. And the person who shot and killed the shopkeeper will say, well, at least I'm not a serial killer. But then the serial killer will say, well, at least I'm not a serial rapist and a serial killer. And the serial rapist and the serial killer will say, at least I'm not a serial pedophile rapist and a serial killer. But then the serial pedophile, rapist, and killer will say, at least I'm not as bad as a terrorist. And then terrorists will say, what did I do wrong, right? Okay? So we always think we are better than other people. And that's the same way the Jews and the good moral person thinks, at least I'm better than this other person. But what God is saying here to Paul is that once we do the same things that we judge other people to be wrong of, then we are wrong and sinful. Because ultimately, as we read there in verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. It's based on truth. 
it is not based on how you relate to other people. It's not based on how you see yourself versus other people. It's not about comparing yourself against other people who are better or worse. It is an absolute standard based on truth. And the problem is, if God knows us based on truth, then we all have no hope. The Jew has no hope. We have no hope because God sees us as we really are. We cannot hide from God. You know, I remember going to many funerals before. And uh, sometimes, I remember, remember this joke about uh, a funeral, about how there was this mafia boss who died. So the brothers of this mafia boss paid a visit to the pastor. And he said, look, whatever you say in the funeral, I want you to say that our brother was a good man. Right? I don't care what you say during the funeral, you must say he was a good man. So the pastor was thinking, well, how do I, how can I say that this man was a good man? I mean, he was a mafia don, he was a killer, he sold drugs, you know, he's involved in all this crime. How could I say he was a good man? So during the eulogy, he went on and went on. Then finally he said, but compared to his brothers, he was a good man. Right? <laughs> See, we always want to be remembered as a good man, as a good person. But that's not the truth. And I remember when I've been to some funerals, I've been very surprised because when I speak to the relatives at the, at the funeral, after talking to them for a while, sometimes they tell you bad things about the person who died. You know, maybe he was a father that was a neglectful father who never came home. Maybe he was a drunk. Maybe it was a mother who was bad in some way. Maybe it was a brother or uncle who did wrong things. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, if, if I can see these things, then how much more God who sees all these things. So imagine for ourselves that God sees you as you really are, in truth, based on the truth. Are there really any good moral people left in this world? There cannot be because God sees everything. But not only that, because in verse 5 he says, that you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. And I think this phrase righteous judgment is very important because it means that God always judges rightly. God doesn't make mistakes. God gives you exactly what you deserve. You know the in the law system we have today, uh, there's so many court systems, I can't understand it. When I read the newspaper, I have to ask my wife, right, no, why, why is it, what's the lower court, then what's the high court, what's the supreme court, and then what comes after that? Why do you have all these different courts? It's because it may be that the judgment was not right. It may be that the judge made a mistake. But God is not like that. God judges righteously. He will give you exactly what you deserve on the day when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So against the, the standard of absolute judgment based on truth and righteousness, there is really no escape. Not even for the Jew. And that's what Paul talks about in the next section from verse 5. To verse, sorry, from verse 6 to verse 11. 
Because it says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Now, this uh, passage may be a bit troubling to us. And if we look at it in isolation, there is a suggestion that if you do good, enough good, you can actually gain uh, glory, honor, immortality, and peace. But it cannot be read that way because it's actually part of the argument which flows from chapter 1 and chapter 2. So in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, remember, salvation is all by faith alone. And from 1 to 5, it's all about how God's righteous judgment is coming based on truth. So what he's not saying is that uh, you can actually save yourself by doing good, but he's saying that hypothetically, if you did good and you didn't make any mistakes, you would be saved. But, but what comes before had already shown that that's not possible. But the point that I think Paul is trying to make here is that even though, even though you're a Jew, God will not show you favoritism. And that's the key, isn't it, in verse 11. God does not show favoritism between the Jew and the Gentile. That's the point that God is trying to make here. Now, I always remember how uh, when I first started having kids, uh, I began to understand this um, quote that someone said to me before, which was very puzzling to me before at children. And they said, every parent thinks that their baby's poo smells like ice cream. And I could never understand what that person was saying until I had kids. But I think it's true. You see, if you ask maybe David and Mandy or or Nick and Collie or Keith and Sarah, you know, their baby's poo doesn't smell that bad. Why is that? It's only because they are the parents. And I think that What God is saying here to the Jew is that they really thought that because they were the chosen people, that God would show them favoritism. That somehow because they had the law, they could escape judgment. So in between the writings of the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is the writing called the Apocrypha. And this is uh, one of the books of the Apocrypha is the Wisdom of Solomon, which says, In 15 verse 2, For even if we sin, we belong to you because we know your power. But that's not true. God is saying that yes, even though they have a favored status. He says, you know, even though first comes the Jew and then the Gentile in terms of relationships. But yet, if God is judging righteously and God is judging based on truth, then there is no place for favoritism. Part of the reason why the Jews felt that they had a special relationship with God was because they had the law. And in verse 12 to 16, God goes on to say that possession of the law doesn't mean that you can be excused from judgment. So if you look up here on this slide, the Jews thought, okay, because I have the law, equals no judgment for me. 
But look at what it says in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. See, having the law is no protection against judgment because it is not knowledge that is important, it is obedience. So currently, my, my kids uh, are going through their driving tests and everything, or at least one of them, anyway, one passed already. But the other one is going through their driving tests and whatever to get through to get a driving license. But at what stage are they allowed to drive? Is it when they pass their, you know the knowledge part? What's the knowledge part called? Ah, the, the, part, the, the theory part? Or is it when they pass the driving test? Yeah, so what is the difference between the theory part and the driving test? See, the theory part is just knowledge. Ah, I know, okay, I have to drive on the left side of the road, try not to hit any pedestrians, stop at the red lights, no parking, double yellows. Must, uh, you know, especially when you're parking, try not to hit the car next to you or so. But the driving test actually shows that you can do these things. And that's what really counts in the end. Whether you can do these things. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying that the Jews have the law, but the Gentiles have the conscience. And at times, the conscience and the law are actually saying the same things. But both sets of people cannot obey the law or their conscience. See, imagine I'm driving, and I don't have a driving theory. But yet, I can still get a sense of what I need to do. I, I, I know I stay in my lane, I don't hit other people, I don't speed, even though I don't know, don't know what the speed limit is. I know I shouldn't go through the red lights because everybody else is stopping. I don't know the theory, but I'm doing what is required. Well, he's saying the Gentiles are doing the same things. They may not know exactly what's in the law, but their conscience is telling them what's in the law. But the problem is, if you look in verse 15, is that even though they have the law written on their hearts, their consciences are also bearing witness to their conscience, and their thoughts are sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. That means that their conscience is saying that sometimes they are obeying their conscience and defending them and saying, yes, you did the right thing, but other times your conscience was actually saying to you, you did the wrong thing. Now, I'm sure that for every one of us here today, we are in the similar shoes. Because all of us have at one time or another gone against our conscience. God declares it, that there is a time where your conscience will accuse you of doing something that you did wrong. Or you should have done something and you didn't do it. 
And God will judge you for it because you went against your conscience. I remember watching this movie. Uh, next one. I, I don't think many people have seen it because nobody has ever heard of it. And I, and I borrowed a DVD shop. But it was quite interesting and it's about a trek. See, I, I probably only watched it because of what it's about. It's about how in Europe, if you ever have nothing to do and you like, you know, have a lot of free time, there's a trek apparently from France to Spain which follows this pilgrim trail. Okay, it's like 800 miles or something. It's very long. But all these people, they go from France to Spain following the trail that the pilgrims used to go through various monasteries to, this, to, the, to the coast, I think. Anyway, in the movie, there is this woman who has this secret. And because each, everybody goes on this pilgrim trail for a reason. Okay, some of them go there because they experience a tragedy. I think this guy... His wife died or left him. Then other people are trying to get over their alcoholism or something. Anyway, this woman has a, has a dark secret, which nobody knows obviously until the end of the movie, where her, her conscience is really not at peace. And I think that what the Bible says here is exactly what that woman is experiencing. There are times where your conscience is not at peace and it's accusing you and telling you you're doing the wrong things. And God says all of us have that conscience at some point in time. But what is more, in verse 16 it says that on the last day God will judge both the Jews and the Gentiles based on the secrets that they have. What a scary thing that is. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, okay, Luke chapter 12, he said, There is nothing concealed that will be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark room will be heard in the daylight. And what you've whispered in the ear, in the inner rooms, will be proclaimed from the roofs. How scary is that? It's like, imagine you go into the cupboard of your most remote room in your house or your HDB flat, and you whisper something to someone, on the last day, that will be shouted out from the rooftops. All your secrets will be known. Well, that's what's going to happen on the last day. All your secrets will be known and God will judge you by it. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 4, next one, it says, For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. There are no secrets before God. If there are no secrets before God, if God sees the truth and God judges righteously, there are no good moral people. I began the sermon by talking about my golfing friend who said that the world is made up of good people for the majority and a minority of bad people. And he obviously believes he's part of the majority of good people. But from God's perspective... There is only one majority of bad people, which includes ourselves, and no good people. Uh, the very famous Russian author Solzhenitsyn said, The world thinks it's divided between good and bad people. The world is not divided among people. The division is in people's hearts. There is good and bad in every person's heart. In no person is there only good. I think that's true. There is no completely good person. 
in the heart of everybody, including all of us sitting here, there is good and bad. Maybe some more good, some more bad, but there is bad in all of us. And God will judge us. So ultimately, we need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. We need the power of God, the gift of righteousness, and we need to have faith. I hope that if you sit here today and you have the mistaken idea that you are a good person, that this passage will tell you very clearly you are not a good person. Not because you are particularly bad, but just that there are no good people in this world. In God's eyes, based on truth, on your secrets, on righteousness, you are all facing God's wrath. And all of us need faith in Jesus Christ so that we will have the gift of God's righteousness. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we want to thank you for how today's word so powerfully convicts us of our sin, of our wickedness, of our pure darkness in many ways. Humble us, dear Father. Help us to see ourselves aright. Help us to see us in truth, based on our secrets, in righteousness, just as you would. Help us to see how in so many ways we have fallen far, far short of your absolute standard of righteousness. Help us to see how we deservedly face your wrath and judgment. And convicted of this, may we humbly come before you and accept through faith the death of Jesus Christ for our sins and the gift of your righteousness. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.